Fetish, written and read by Tara Moss. About this digital talking book. Navigation of this digital talking book is by part at the first navigation level. To support the production of this and other digital talking books, please contact the Association for the Blind of Western Australia Inc. Country code plus six one, area code zero eight nine three one one eight two zero two, or by email dtb at guidedogswa dot com dot au. Part one. Prologue. She wore stilettos, burnished black and stylish, with thin straps that bit into her pale, slender ankles. Her heels clicked on the winter pavement as she made her way up the street alone. He strained to capture the sound they made, the beguiling music pulling him in like a pied piper's song. Click, click, click. Slowly he drove past. Observing the girl through the hungry eyes of a predator, she was young, raven-haired, and seductive, wearing a short black skirt to reveal willowy bare legs. A winter jacket fell to her thighs, but wasn't enough to keep her slim legs warm. He could see goosebumps and the bluish hue of cold, bare skin. Click, click. He passed her again minutes later. The street was nearly empty, but still she did not acknowledge his presence. She continued instead on her misguided course, her pretty face set with determination, walking alone, lost. The clouds above her were leaden, heavy with the threat of rain. He could see no umbrella. How far would she be willing to walk once the skies began to cry? Surely she didn't want to get wet. Surely her feet were tired. It was inevitable that she would need him. Patiently. He watched her remove a map from her heavy shoulder bag. Jet silken hair fell over her face as she unfolded it and struggled to make sense of the intricate web of streets, roads, and lanes. She squinted with concentration, and when the clouds finally opened, showering her with cold droplets, she shot an irritated look at the lowering sky before scanning the street for shelter. There were no taxis, no telephone booths, no open cafes or corner stores. Nothing for blocks. The rain began to fall more heavily. Click. The girl set off again, walking faster, aimlessly. Her black bag weighed upon her shoulder. The map scrunched in frustration in her hand. Raindrops made slick, shimmering lines down her soft, hairless legs. He pulled up beside her. Now is the time. He unwound his window. Are you okay? He asked. You look lost. I'm fine," the girl replied, and glanced nervously up the street. Her accent was foreign, American, or perhaps Canadian. Are you sure? This isn't a safe area for you to be walking alone. He made a show of checking his watch. My wife is expecting me home for dinner, but I could spare a few moments to drive you where you need to be. A gold band shone on his left ring finger. He'd polished it specially for occasions like these. Her eyes rested on it for an instant. Oh no, I'm all right. I think. Her face was beautiful, youthful, and achingly flawless, and her pale complexion was rosy with exertion, radiating warm light like a soft porcelain lamp. Do you know where Cleveland Street is? She asked. Oh dear, you're nowhere near Cleveland Street. We're on Philip now. Here. 
Let me show you on your map. He beckoned her closer, and she slowly walked over to lean against the passenger side door. He could smell the odor of sweet, young sweat. Her face was glistening, now only a foot from his. Here, hop in for a sec. You're getting all wet. He pushed the passenger door open for her. She stepped back and watched the van door open, uncertainty etched on her face. For a moment she didn't move, and he wondered if she would accept his help. He smiled harmlessly, not allowing his impatience to betray him. Then, with raindrops rolling down her forehead, the girl shrugged and slid onto his dry passenger seat. Sheltered from the rain, she looked relieved. She passed him the map, offering a wide, friendly smile that revealed a set of perfect white teeth. She left the passenger door open, with one slender leg stretched down to touch the wet pavement. He forced his eyes away. We're here, he pointed to the map. You need Cleveland Street, which is here. You've got to walk up this way, then... Her scent overwhelmed him. Honeyed, wet smells, musky and damp between her legs. He sensed that her heartbeat was slowing. She was relaxing for him, trusting him. He kept talking, explaining in soothing paternal tones. It looked impossibly far on her map. Indeed, the distance sounded inconceivable as he spoke. In reality, it would have been a short walk. Night coated the city with an impenetrable inky blanket. The clouds had shed their rain and had rolled away, and the sleepy streets glistened with moisture as the van passed quietly over them. With eyes well adjusted to the dark, he drove to a large isolated parking lot, turned off his headlights, and coasted towards his chosen spot under some tall, overhanging fig trees. His beautiful girl whimpered softly behind him, as she had from time to time during their drive together. He fetched a pair of gloves and put them on. After checking that the driver and passenger doors were both locked, he made his way to her, carefully closing the heavy curtains which separated the cab from the rear of the van. He switched on a battery-powered lamp, blinking for a moment while his eyes adjusted. The thick black blanket had fallen down to the girl's stomach during the drive. Her arms were still held straight above her head, wrists secured to the shackles on the wall, her body lying flat against the van's floor. Her thin, pale blue knitted top was decorated with haphazard splatters of blood, the same treacly blood that glistened around her hairline. A dark mole the size of a lady beetle stood out against her pale neck. With eyes half open and full of salty tears that streaked mascara down her cheeks, she was moaning again, shifting weakly. Impervious to her weeping and plaintive struggles, he reached for his supplies. He would have to gag her now. She had remained placid since he hit her, but she might become noisy, and even in their isolated spot, he couldn't risk that. Her eyes followed his movements as he brought the gag close to her face and widened at the sight of the red rubber ball and its long leather straps. She was becoming lucid. The timing was good. He had long ago lost interest in unconscious victims. It's all right. I won't hurt you, he lied. There was no sense in getting her excited until she was fully secured. He yanked her jaw open with both hands and shoved the rubber ball inside. The girl's watery eyes became huge saucers of shocked blue, and she choked out a stifled protest. He pulled the straps around her head and fastened the buckles at the back his fingers running through the gummy blood oozing from her crown. 
One day, he would have his own soundproof room. Oh, how the reactions, the screams excited him. But for now, he had to do without that particular luxury. Gagged and bound, the girl began struggling with surprising strength. Swiftly, he straddled her and punched her square in the jaw with one gloved fist. Her eyes snapped shut, and she let out a muffled cry, the tears coming harder. Her body convulsed with the sobs, and he felt himself become more fully aroused. He ripped the blanket off her. Diminutive breasts jiggled under her thin top. Her miniskirt was riding up around her hips, but the black stilettos were in place on the girl's dainty feet. He moved down her body and removed her right shoe. Lovely. Perfect. Her toes were smooth and delicately formed. He was very pleased. He slipped the stiletto back on, enjoying the look of it more, knowing what perfect digits it housed. He reached for his blade and moved back up his latest possession. She was bleeding but conscious, blue eyes open again and rolling wildly with panic. With one long, graceful movement, he sliced through her flimsy top, splitting it open from waist to neck. She wore a plain, cream-colored bra. He cut through the center clasp, and it snapped open, leaving her pale chest exposed. He cut through her skirt and cotton panties, and placed them in a neat pile with her other clothing. She was naked for him. Immune to her stifled pleading and now desperate flood of tears, he continued. At daybreak, the man decided it was time to leave the parking lot. Although he hadn't slept a single wink, he wasn't tired. Sitting beside the girl's silent body, he felt calm and powerful. Curious, he looked through the girl's things before disposing of them. He opened the large black bag she had been carrying and found a heavy 10 by 12 inch book, a model's portfolio. He flipped through it. The photos inside showed the girl in several benign poses, smiling, walking, or standing. Boring. He also found a wallet with a Canadian passport, an address book, and a crinkled letter addressed to a Catherine Gerber. He unfolded the letter and read, Dear Cat, I really look forward to seeing you. Six months is too long apart. Thanks for coming back from my mum's funeral. She would have wanted you there. She always said you were daughter number three. I doubt I could have survived it without you, and Dad appreciated you being there too. Enough depressing stuff. As I told you on the phone, I will arrive Thursday morning at 7.45 on Japan Airlines flight JL-771 from Tokyo. If you aren't in when I arrive, don't forget to leave a key for me somewhere. The agency has already booked me for a shoot at La Perouse on Friday. Talk about no time for jet lag. Thanks for letting me stay with you. We have so much to talk about. See you soon. Your best friend always, Mac. A scarric of a smile infected his lips. It would make a good souvenir. He checked through the wallet, which held little interest for him, until he found a compartment with photos. Girl with family, girl with man, girl with blonde. He stared transfixed at the photo. Girl with blonde. She was intriguing, tall with beautiful thick platinum hair that cascaded down past her shoulders. Who was she? The photo looked like it had been taken in a foreign city. He turned it over and read the smudged writing. Me and Mac making it big in Munich. He stared captivated for a while and then lovingly placed the photo in his wallet beside one of his mother. He read the letter again. 
La Perouse. That wasn't far away. He took the letter and a dress book and stowed them in his briefcase. He gathered up the girl's clothes, put them in a big garbage bag, and when he was ready, climbed into the driver's seat and drove away unseen into the crisp, dewy morning. Chapter One Sorry, I'm tied up at the moment, the giggling voice on the answering machine announced. But leave a message, and if you're lucky, I'll call you back. McKatie Vanderwall shook her head and waited for the tone. Hey, Cat, I just got in. I'm about to jump in a taxi. I know you're there. She gave Cat a few seconds to pick up the phone. Hmm. If you're really not there, I trust you've left a key in a self explanatory location. Mac looked forward to seeing her friend. Almost as much, she looked forward to getting out of her slept in clothes and into a hot shower. Her black turtleneck top felt a bit too traveled in, and her favorite Levi's had been stained by a weak coffee. The coffee's target had been the cup of a businessman seated in 34J, but the apologetic Stuart missed due to a sudden change in altitude. Or perhaps attitude, Mac was unsure. She strode across the airport terminal, bags in tow, and inadvertently turned a few heads. As a six foot blonde, McCady attracted attention wherever she went. Though she barely noticed these days. Old jeans and morning hair made little difference to the rubberneck effect. The flight from Canada was excruciatingly long, and she had again wondered whether the $500 saved by taking the roundabout route had really been worth it. The lengthy wait at customs would have been unbearable if she had known that Catherine wasn't going to be at the airport. Nonetheless, after more than a day of travel, she was a mere 30 minutes away from a happy reunion. She dragged herself to the taxi stand outside and joined the long queue of tired and bedraggled international travelers. Winter rain had made the roads and footpaths shine. Perhaps July was not the best time to visit Australia, but it was between psychology courses for Mac, so she had to take the opportunity when it came. Her modeling days were numbered, and she could still count the figures of her bank balance on six fingers, including the decimal point. She hoped it would be a working holiday with lots of working and a much needed cash injection. A taxi pulled up and popped its boot, and in no time Mac was hurtling through the rain towards Bondi Beach. Twenty minutes later, the taxi crested the rise on Bondi Road, passing Waverly Oval as the clouds parted. Golden rays of sunlight reflected on the twinkling green grass of the Cricket Oval, and by the time they reached the top of Campbell Parade, The clouds had completely disappeared, as if Bondi had a special arrangement with the gods of weather. It lifted her spirits to take in the spectacular stretch of shimmering sand and surf. Two whole months to enjoy the beautiful coastline and catch up with her best friend. Perhaps a bit of travel and a revived modeling career was just what she needed to invigorate her lagging spirits. McCady stood outside a weather worn three story red brick block of flats on Campbell Parade. And checked the address again as the taxi pulled away. She buzzed the intercom for number six and waited. And waited. She tried the door. Must have had a late night, she thought with slight irritation. The lock was broken, and the outside door opened to reveal a shabby, rickety timber staircase. It appeared she'd have to drag the bags in herself and knock until Catherine woke up. McCady lugged the suitcases up the stairs. Cursing the books and winter clothes that weighed them down. She reached flat number six, 
which was barely distinguishable by a small metal six hanging upside down on a loose nail, appearing at a glance as number nine. She knocked on the door. No answer. Urrrr, she growled with growing frustration. She left her bags at the top of the stairs and ventured to the mailbox outside to search for a note or a key. When she found box number six empty, save for a Thai delivery menu, she felt the first twinge of a headache. She groped around inside the box, hoping her eyes were deceiving her. No luck. Empty. It was after 9 a.m. on a Thursday morning, and surely most of the building's inhabitants would be working or surfing, so she walked back up to number six and laid into the door with a fierce and futile burst of pounding. The flat was unresponsive. She slumped against the door and rested her aching head in her hands. Chill, she thought. Chill and find a phone. Hoping no one would bother to drag her cumbersome baggage away, she stepped onto the street and spotted an orange-hooded public phone booth a block away. She walked briskly over to it, pulling a crumpled piece of paper from her pocket. The phone ingested her coins in a hurried metallic gurgle and rang several times before someone answered. Book model agency. The greeting was monotonous and disinterested. Hi, this is McKady Vanderwall. Could I speak with Charles Swinton, please? He's busy right now. How long will he be? Can I take a message? Mac closed her eyes. Look, I just flew in from Canada, and I'm standing outside one of your model's flats with my suitcases, and there's no one here to let me in or give me a key. I really need to speak with Charles. Just a moment. After a couple of clicks, a man's voice came on the line. Hello, Charles. This is McKady Vanderwall. She explained her situation as politely but firmly as she could manage. We have an extra key for the Bondi flat here if you want to come in, he replied. I'm standing out here with two very heavy suitcases. Could you have someone put it in a taxi and send it over? Twenty-eight minutes later, a taxi pulled up and McKady let herself in with the extra key. The accommodation was modest, typical for traveling models a studio flat with twin beds and a tiny kitchen and bathroom. Although the bed looked short enough for her feet to hang off the edge, she savoured the thought of getting horizontal on it. Catherine had only been living in the furnished flat for a month, but McKady noticed that she had already added her special touch to the place. The sparse decor had been livened up with an assortment of chic fashion magazine cutouts, ads for Gucci, Chanel, Calvin Klein and Aussie designers Morrissey and Lisa Ho coated the walls in a collage of dizzying couture. She could just imagine the landlord's expression at seeing the miles of sticky tape holding the pictures in place. Followed by 100 mascara-enhanced vacant stairs, McKady took in the small flat, the cramped bathroom, the half-kitchen with its minibar-sized fridge, and the large window which opened onto a stunning view of southern Bondi Beach. Across from the window, the two single beds were made with mismatched covers, each with its own uncomfortably thin-looking pillow. A pint-sized, 70s-style chest of drawers separated the beds, and McKady saw a notepad resting on it beside the phone. She picked it up and read the hastily scrawled message. J.T. Terrigal, Beach Res, 1614. McKady couldn't make much of the note. She had been expecting some hurried excuse for Catherine's absence, but the message did not appear addressed to her, or anyone else for that matter. Catherine mentioned she might have had a date for the weekend, but she refused to say with whom. Was the note related to that? The writing looked rushed. 
Perhaps Catherine had to leave at the last minute. Puzzled and disappointed, McCady embarked on a more thorough inspection of the flat. The fridge door, which would have been a natural choice, was littered with takeaway food menus, but no notes. The answering machine was flashing its red messages light. McCady pressed the play button. The first two messages were dial tones. Then, Catherine, it's Sky from Book. Call me. There were a few clicks and pauses, but the next message was her own voice. Hey, Cat, I just got in. I'm about to jump in a taxi. She suspected that sometime during the day she would receive an excited and apologetic phone call from Cat, describing how her secret Romeo had swept her off her feet and whisked her away for a scandalous sojourn. So much for the welcome wagon. McKay decided to make herself at home, and the first thing on her list was that long-awaited hot shower. Unfortunately, the bathroom proved to be even more cramped than it looked. It was either an ill-conceived design in minimal space, or an illegal conversion from a closet—something she had seen before in other models' flats. She had to stand on the toilet seat to get to the shower slash bathtub, because the sink hung over the seat and there was no space to move in between. After kneeling on the toilet seat to brush her teeth, she shuffled across and climbed into the tub. Mac showered under a refreshing stream of hot water, gratefully soaping away the stickiness of travel. She toweled off, and still warm, crawled into bed wearing a t-shirt and pair of boxers, which had retained her affections long after their original owner. She had not slept well in many months and hadn't managed to sleep at all on the flight. She was too tired to even think about staying awake to adjust her circadian rhythms. Instead, she set the alarm for 5:30 in the afternoon so she could call book agency for the following day's photo session details, and check for any messages Catherine might have left. Sleep came swiftly, but her rest was haunted by disturbing dreams. Catherine is reaching out. Catherine is stretching through layers of dreamscape, terror shattering her beautiful features. She is pulled further and further into a cryptic black expanse. Her face. Ghostly and pale, is stretched into a silent scream. Her eyes are growing larger and larger, rounder and more frightened as she is pulled further. A thick, lifeless mass of dark swallows her slowly. She is begging, pleading, as she is swallowed. Nothing will bring her back. The phone rang. McKady sat bolt upright, beads of sweat covering her face. The clock said 5:22 p.m. Hello. It was Charles Swinton, her booker, confirming the details for the following day's photo shoot at La Perouse. The job was scheduled for an early start, and it would be a long day. In spite of the recent rain, they didn't require an early morning weather check. They were confident it would clear up. Uh, Charles, has there been any word from Catherine? No, I suspect she's run off early for the weekend. By the way, you're up for the Becky Ross fashion launch too. We should have it confirmed tomorrow. Becky Ross, the soapy star. She's big at the moment. She's promoting her own line of clothes. Should be excellent exposure for you. Great. Let me know. McKady thanked him for the key to the flat and said goodbye. She lay in bed, waiting for the phone to ring and hoping Charles was right. Catherine could get carried away in love with love itself and convinced that her latest man was none other than Prince Charming in a Porsche. It had happened before. It was only five thirty p.m., but it was past midnight in Canada. She struggled to stay awake, but by ten p.m., her energy quietly packed up and abandoned her, and her eyelids locked shut. She drifted off with a dog-eared copy of Mind Hunter in her hand.
Chapter Two. The following morning was mercilessly cold, with a biting southerly that whipped along the coastline, causing the caravan to shudder and groan like a feverish old man. Mercedes stood inside its open door, savoring her last moments of warmth. It was odd that Catherine had not called or left any messages. Even if she was taking advantage of a couple of extra days off to enjoy a romantic weekend away, she could have at least phoned. Who was this guy anyway? Mac hoped it wasn't the same unnamed man Cat had been seeing for nearly a year, but in all likelihood it was. Cat had dropped a few hints. He was very rich, plenty powerful, and he lived in Australia. No doubt he was what made her choose the southern hemisphere to continue her career. Mercedes strongly suspected he was married, but when she pressed the issue, Cat just grinned guiltily. Apparently, this man made her swear under penalty of death, as she put it. To complete secrecy over his name and the details of their affair, Mercedes never could get the guy's real name out of her friend, so she came up with her own. Whenever Cat had showed up with a new piece of flashy gold jewelry, Mercedes had simply asked, "So how's Dick?" She might have been brash enough to ask, "So how's your Dick?" Except that any man wanting to keep a stunner like Catherine a secret was obviously not hers in any sense. Mercedes shivered. Watching the photographer and his entourage, rugged up in parkas and long pants, make their way down to the water's edge, her thoughts drifted away as the assistant waved. It was her turn to join them. The moment she stepped from the warm caravan, her skin broke out in indignant goose flesh. Harsh wind whipped through the red checkered picnic blanket she had wrapped around her. She could see the crew setting up on the sand below, and from their strained postures, it was obvious there would be no shelter. I'm too old for this," Mercedes mumbled to no one in particular. "I'm twenty-five. Shouldn't I be finishing my psychology degree? Shouldn't I be having babies like my sister?" She dismissed her thoughts as quickly as they came, pushing down the pain that had risen quickly within her. Adjusting the hot water bottle strategically shoved down the back of her suit, Mac hurried down to the chute. Minutes later, she was posing elegantly. With the wintry ocean lapping at her feet and her blonde hair flying back from her face, for a moment her mind focused completely on her body, aware of how her size ten feet were positioned to minimize their length, the turn of her hips, the angle of her shoulders, and the graceful placement of her hands, all in relation to the camera lens. Once she was satisfied that her pose was right, she allowed her thoughts to wander. Mercedes was grateful for her lack of appetite the night before, because her stomach seemed a little flatter than usual. Some girls were known to swear off liquid for several days before a body shoot, as it was called, but Mac rarely went to those lengths. She heard rumors of laxative abuse too, but what was the point? Self-induced diarrhea? She was generally chosen for her healthy look, with the bonus of some curves, so she tended to worry more about all-night chocolate binges than mere sips of water. Besides, she told herself, if they had wanted a waif, they would have chosen one of the many teenage models subsisting on coffee and cigarettes. As the photographic team silently examined her appearance, Mercedes stretched up and tightened her stomach, assuming a well-practiced pose that made the best of her feminine physique and presented the aqua blue bikini at its most saleable. The two representatives of the swimwear brand, who scrutinized every inch of her, seemed happy with the fit of their tiny garment. Once the Polaroid was snapped, Mac leapt for the blanket, now lying a couple of feet away, and wrapped it around her shivering body. Jumping up and down in her battle against the cold, the others took no notice. Tony Thomas, the photographer, was unhappy with the quality of the light. 
He barked orders at his assistant, his instructions flying past McKay's ears in muffled gusts of wind. She looked on with restrained amusement as the assistant brought out a large gold reflector board and gamely struggled to keep control of it. The client and the art director watched the clumsy spectacle with stony frowns. It's got to look summery, one of them insisted. Can't you do something with her hair, Joseph? Joseph was a delicate-looking man who applied makeup to a face the way many artists tend to their cherished canvases, adding a touch, stepping back, squinting, and then adding another. Today, though, his own face was pinched in frozen displeasure. He stepped towards her, careful not to disturb the sand where the shot would be taken, and tried pinning her mane of hair back. The wind promptly rebelled, sending a couple of pins flying into the air and others dangling from the very ends of her hair. She had known it would be winter in this corner of the globe, but had temporarily forgotten that this was irrelevant as far as the clients were concerned. Summer designs were always shot the winter before their release, including swimwear. When no one was paying much attention, she held the hot water bottle against her chest, perfect for minimalizing nippleitis. The chilly day dragged on. Lunch consisted of some rather sad, wilted salad grains that the photographer's assistant was sent away to fetch. McKady could have sworn she saw the photographer scoff down a cheesy focaccia and a beer when no one else was looking. By five o'clock, she was relieved at the prospect of shooting the last outfit. It was a daringly high-cut, bright yellow zipper-front swimsuit that was an ode to a decade when Christie referred to Brinkley, not Turlington. As usual, things became rushed as the client pushed to end the shoot before 20 minutes past the hour. That was the magic minute when models had to be paid for the extra hour's work. It was amazing how many photo shoots ended at 19 minutes past. As time was at a premium, McKady was forced to change on the beach with a towel held in front of her by the embarrassed photographer's assistant, who did his best to look the other way.